Hi, it's me again, part 14 of our journey through Paul's letter to the Romans. And we come to everybody's favourite chapter, chapter 8. I want to look at the first 17 verses today, but I want to particularly look at the very first verse, in fact the very first word, because it's an absolute key word for Paul. The word is, therefore. Now watch out when you see that word in Paul's epistles. It means that there's a transition coming in the light of what's gone before. Now this, there's new stuff to know and or to do. The word therefore makes the transition from theology to discipleship, from, if you like, pure to applied, from theory to real life. I may have uh, mentioned before somewhere in my podcast that when I was a theological student up in Durham, I was uh, put out on field work in a particular church not far away, and I can remember uh, propounding my great preaching theory there, and that is that there are three kinds of sermon. There are okay sermons, there are but how sermons, and there are so what sermons. Now, okay sermon is kind of okay, works well. A but how sermon tells me what I really ought to be doing, but doesn't give me the slightest clue about how to go about doing that. And so what sermons are really um, kind of interesting theology, but with no practical application. I, I don't know what to go away and do as a result of having heard all that. And I can remember uh, telling the congregation in my fieldwork church about my preaching theory and challenging them that if ever I'd preached a sermon that they thought was but how or so what, they should stand up and tell me so before I sat down at the end of it. Well, of course, the inevitable happened. A, a cocky member of the youth group I'd preached what I thought was a rather good sermon. Um, and at the end, he stood up and shouted out in the church, so what? And uh, I was deeply ashamed of that, but also clever enough at that stage to give him another 20 minutes off the cuff of application, which completely cured anyone of ever shouting that out to me again. Now, Romans 1 to 7, you might say, is so what? We've had uh, seven chapters of dense theology. So what? What earthly difference does it make? And that's where the word therefore comes in. Paul is going to tell us. And the whole of chapter 8 is really a list of the uh, kind of the benefits really of being in Christ. What is actually in it for us if all this theology is true and if we respond appropriately. So that's what this chapter is about. And it begins with that, that thunderclap thing. There is no condemnation. As a Jew under the Jewish law, 
which we said earlier has as its sole purpose to show us what sinners we actually are. Jews like Paul were in a constant fight against condemnation, condemned by the law, condemned very often by their own conscience, brought to life by the law. And ultimately, of course, the big fear is the possibility of condemnation by God. How would I know that I was going to be all right when I died? And so Paul begins with fantastic news into that culture. There is no condemnation. And that is brilliant to hear. And you can hear the uh, readers thinking, well, maybe all that theology just has been useful after all. So no condemnation, but he then moves on to list some further benefits of being a Christian. Freedom from the law, verse 2, both the Jewish law and the, what we said last week, the law of sin, the flesh, the bit of us which wants to sin and enjoys sinning. Verse 10, life now, but verse 11, life to come in eternity, just as Jesus was raised, so will we be. Verse 15, freedom from slavery. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Instead, verse 14, a relationship with God, not as a boss, not as a master, not as a a slave owner, but as father uh, and an intimate relationship that many would translate that word Abba as daddy. And that is not 100%, but it's a good translation. And then in t- on top of all of that, in an inheritance with Christ, verse 17, and glory to come. That's quite a benefits package, you, you've got to admit. But there's still more to come the further we go into chapter 8, and we'll look at that in the future. It's a great list, but there are two huge questions that Paul needs to address. As I said earlier, this is is everybody's favourite chapter of Romans. For some people, it's their favourite chapter in the whole Bible because it's so lovely. But Paul needs to address these questions and I'm going to suggest that he does so in a surprising way. Um, I guarantee you've not often heard Romans 8 expounded in the way that I'm going to do it, but I have become convinced that this is actually what Paul is talking about. So what are those two huge questions? Well, have you ever met insecure Christians? I can remember growing up in the 60s and 70s as a a keen young evangelical and you became a Christian by making a decision for Christ, by giving your heart to him, by opening the door and letting him in, um, all that sort of thing. In fact, it was all about what we decided, what we said But it was very easy once the kind of rush of emotion is over to begin to doubt. 
did, did I really mean that enough? Did I open the door of my heart wide enough for Jesus to get in? And there were a lot of people around at the time who hoped they might have been saved. Uh, there were some people like Chris, my wife, who gave her heart to Jesus again and again, just in case it kind of hadn't taken the last time she did it. And it's that kind of assurance that Paul is going to deal with here. Um, when he makes that bold statement, there is no condemnation. He needs to make sure we all know whom that applies to. So I'll take you through this as carefully as I can and see if you can A, follow and B, agree with my argument here. So there's no condemnation, says Paul, for whom? Verse 1, those who are now in Christ. And he recaps in verses 2 to 4 how that actually works, the stuff that... Uh, we've looked at in the previous chapters so now verse 4 because of what Jesus has done if we're in Christ we don't live according to the sinful nature but we do live according to the spirit and that's the uh, one of the few mentions of the Holy Spirit up to now. Uh, the Spirit's been mentioned in passing a few times, but this chapter really is where the Holy Spirit comes into his own. So, so far so good, but you can hear the nervous Christian asking, can't you? How can I be sure I live according to the Spirit? and not to the sinful nature, and am therefore not under condemnation. We only heard in the last chapter that there's going to be a lifelong struggle. How do I know I'm winning, especially in the light of the fact that actually a lot of time, like you, Paul, I am controlled by the sinful nature and not by the spirit. So in verses 5 to 8, Paul explains the results of being led by the Spirit. It's all about, he says, what you desire. What If you want what the Spirit brings or what sinful human nature wants. If your desires are the Spirit's way, then there's no condemnation. But there's no way you can please God if you're controlled by sin. Well, okay, but doesn't that just push the, the the question further back? How do I know, for goodness sake? I know all that. I, I recognise that struggle that Paul admits to in chapter 7, but, but that doesn't answer the original question. How can I be sure I'm not condemned? And Paul reassures us in that, in verse 9, it's easy. If the Spirit lives in you, he will control you. You will desire what he wants. If you've not got the Spirit living in you, you, de you don't belong to Christ. So therefore you are still under condemnation. It's as simple as that. It all comes down to this. Have I got the Spirit living in me or not? If I have 
then all that no condemnation stuff applies to me. If I haven't, it doesn't. But then there's a really surprising twist because what would you expect the next question from the nervous Christian to ask? I bet if you went through Paul's argument here, most Christians today would get to this point and immediately ask you the next obvious question, how do I know if I've got the Spirit living in me? There's no condemnation if I'm in Christ. If I'm in Christ, then I will follow the Spirit and not the sinful desires. I will be controlled by the Spirit if I've got the Spirit living in me. That's the next question. How do I know if I've got the Spirit living in me? And what's absolutely amazing is that Paul doesn't raise or answer that question. He moves on to talk about the obligation we have to live according to the Spirit. Uh, and that's the big puzzle here. He just stops dead. It never occurs to him that the phrase, if you've got the Spirit living in you, would be anything other than the clincher for this. <coughs> But nowadays in the church, because Paul stops it there, and we don't hear that, that final question, we'd all be left asking, well, am I condemned or not, for goodness sake? How do we explain that? Now, here's my suggestion. Here's my take on the passage, and uh, I, I would defend it, but... Uh, let me tell you what it is. My suggestion, he doesn't answer that question, how do I know if I've got the Spirit living in me? Because he just doesn't need to. And his expectation for the church of his day is this, all this condemnation or not hangs on whether you've got the Spirit living in you, and that clinches it. Now, just imagine the scenario, and I believe this is an accurate picture of what the book of Acts teaches. Just imagine that if, in the early church, when people became Christians, they were baptised, but they were also baptised in the Spirit, or, or prayed for to receive the Spirit, or, or whatever. And as a result of that, they spoke in tongues, they prophesied, they healed the sick, all that kind of stuff. Now, that would be a bit of a clincher, wouldn't it? I was uh, baptised in the Baptist church, where I was brought up at age 18, none of this uh, Anglican baby stuff for me in those days and I have never for one second doubted that I was baptised partly because I've got a certificate to prove it but also because I can remember it I was there it happened to me and that is the real clincher for me but what if our baptism in the spirit was every bit as dramatic and memorable. 
you ask most Christians today, have you got the spirit living in you or not? They'd say, well, I hope so. Or, or well, I did do remember an experience of feeling the spirit speak to me back in 1973 or, or, or something like that. A church which has marginalised the work of the Holy Spirit and limited it to a bunch of weirdos called charismatics. A church where the daily living experience of the reality of the Spirit are not a natural effect of being in Christ might need a bit more added to Paul's argument here. But Paul, writing in his context, just doesn't need to add that. Have I got the Spirit living in me? Yeah, of course I have. I know I have. It's a daily reality for me. You get a similar kind of thing in John's epistles as well. Um, assurance is vital. But all John can say is, well, you can tell if you've got the Spirit or not. No wonder there are so many insecure Christians around in a church where the work of the Spirit and a living experience of him has been so neglected and so marginalised. No wonder there are so many Christians hoping for the best or, or trying to please God uh, in case, but with no certainty at all of their salvation. And Paul would say, uh, putting it very crudely, but I think accurately to, to his argument, I know that there is no condemnation for me because I speak in tongues. That That's very simple. Now, what Paul obviously isn't saying is if you don't speak in tongues, you are condemned. Um, I, I think there's very few Christians actually believe that kind of theology uh, outside of the Pentecostal churches, and I'm not sure many of them do either. But it seems to be an application of this passage that if there is doubt in you if you're not sure about your condemnation or, or whatever then have a look at the role of the spirit in your life there are a couple of examples in the book of acts where people who for one reason or another had not experienced the spirit when they became christians and the apostles thought it absolutely urgent and immediate priority that that was dealt with and so they laid hands on them and they began to prophesy or speak in tongues or whatever and the situation was remedied well there you go that's my take on this passage but then i would say that wouldn't i uh, but next week we're going to be back on safer ground as we look at other benefits of being in christ and being filled with the Spirit. Abiento.